0: All right, well, welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast, where Janelle and I get to sit and talk to amazing people, theologians, practitioners, spiritual leaders, interfaith, intergenerational. And then we get to do this on a weekly basis in the Mile High City and here in Waco, Texas. There's chapters across the country as well. If you want to get plugged in or start your own chapter, you can email Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. We are also on Facebook and Instagram and the formerly Twitter now, X Brew underscore Theology over there. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, share it with your friends. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Pocket Cast, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I think I think it's out there across the board. So if you're listening right now, you've already found it. So if your friend does not have that particular app, then, then share the app that they like to listen to. So uh, Janelle is going to introduce our guest for today. And I am personally very excited about this topic. Well, For other reasons, but I I love Thich Nhat Hanh, so Janelle, go for it. All
1: right. Well, hey, everybody. I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Lisa Pettit. Um, She is part of my interfaith community here in Denver and has just been a a great support and a great friend. And uh, also, we got to tour the uh, monastery here in Denver with her, and that was a ton of fun. So Lisa has a B.A. in psychology with a theology minor from the College of St. Benedict and a Ph.D. in developmental psychology from the University of Denver. Dr. Pettit was ordained in Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh's order of interbeing in 2011. She is a feminist who has learned about disability and self-advocacy from her sister with Down syndrome and anti-racism and intersectionality from wise and generous women and men of color. Lisa teaches yoga, volunteers with high school students around the topics of environmental activism and positive youth development, and spend times in cont- contemplation and deep listening. Welcome, Lisa. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you both. It's great to be here. Great to be with you. Uh, and you guys, we have, we have a cat with us too. Yeah, yeah we have a beautiful <laughs> black cat with us as well. So. Um, so to get started in the pub, I think you saw us do this. We like to introduce ourselves with a, a short statement of our spiritual journey and then kind of label ourselves. And uh, feel free to include your favorite fall food if you'd like to in your description.
2: Favorite fall food. Mm. I had some really good gluten-free uh cranberry orange cookies at oh. lewis and clark college where we were visiting my son over the weekend so that'll that's good enough for tea that tea any tea tea anytime um <laughs> good tea anytime so let's see um my spiritual journey was actually a, a pretty positive one um I grew up, I was baptized in the Catholic Church as an infant and com- confirmed, did all the sort of CCD. I went to all my catechism classes or whatever they were called and actually took them seriously, I didn't try to like escape and and, uh, and had, um, I, I think, one of my formative stories, um, a couple of formative stories. One was when my mom took me, I guess, to a children's mass. She drove across town for Christmas. It was a Christmas children's mass. She wanted to know like what I thought she was all excited to hear. And I said, why do men get to be all the good things like Jesus and Santa Claus? So that's kind of like, I think I was born with a little feminism going on there. And then <clears throat> another, another uh of memory of mine is coming home from church one day and asking my mom something about the homily, the sermon. And she said, well, you can think about it that way or you can think about it this way like that she she was a vatican II catholic had questioned a lot herself and definitely gave me room to question within you know wasn't like listen to what the priest says and believe that there was a lot of really making uh, even if it was reconciliation like doing a face-to-face instead of going into a room and talking to a screen, like really having a more relational and community community kind of thing. So went to public schools, went to College of St. Benedict um, for college. So my first time in a Catholic-ish school, um, they would probably say Catholic school, but um, it was also a women's college. So down the street from a men's college. So really uh, focusing on women and there were was a a monastery of sisters at St. Ben's, a monastery of brothers and priests at St. John's. And so again, the gender dynamic was very strong. And I was um, in my second year, my sophomore year of college, I was a student campus minister. And I was in a group being led by a lay woman. Um, Most of us were women. There there was at least one guy from St. John's, but he was very... I think he was, I don't know if he was from the global South or not, but he brought a very social justice lens to the work he was doing and brought in the the main star from the killing fields that, that demonstrated the whole Cambodian um, war. And so this man who was in the killing fields was a- actually experienced the war. like So social justice oriented. And then there were two women. So this was in the late 80s or, yeah, late 80s, and there were two women there who came out as lesbian, a lesbian couple, and um, and then there were women just who were, like, juniors and seniors who were really questioning, like, why did the sisters take care of everything in their lives, the, the nuns at the, at the monastery, but they have to have a man come over to do mass, right? Like, they can't do that. Why can't they do that? And so it planted a lot of seeds for me in terms of questioning um, of my Catholicism. Like my first year I was going to daily mass sometimes, like it was pretty intense. And so then slowly I I grew away from the church. When I got married to um, my husband who I met at, at school, uh, it was sort of my last hurrah in the church. We got married in the church. I really tried to shape the liturgy and the ceremony to make it feel more meaningful to me, um, and then it was sort of like goodbye, Lydia, <laughs> like, see see <laughs> on the way yeah. uh And so then I was going to graduate. I was at, I was out in Colorado for graduate school, DU, and my mom was saying, "You need to find a big community." And I was like, "There isn't one. There isn't one for me." And she's like, "Well, then you need to make one." And I'm like, "No, I'm not. Like, I'm pissed off the <laughs> religion. Like, I'm not going to go do this work." So didn't and. and I don't remember it was it was 95 so i had been out here for a number of years and uh, i read about something in the denver post about this um it was tony cook from saint paul's united methodist a pastor from there sister mary luke tobin who was a sister of loretto and um a, a neat story about her that i've heard is that when she found out about vatican II, she like without an invitation she just booked a, a ship. She traveled over the ocean to Vatican II by ship. She would like booked a ticket to make sure she was going to be there. Um, and then Jose Cabazon, who's a former Tibetan monk. I mean, he's from Cuba, and he now teaches out in I think you see University of California. I don't know if it's Santa Barbara. Um, he has so he's a scholar of Tibetan Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism, I would say. That's um, probably not getting it quite right. But the three of them were hosting these interfaith gatherings. So those are kind of like my some of my early, although well, I did some ecumenical work at St. Ben St. John's too. Um, but that was kind of where I started dipping my toes into Buddhism more. And I had read a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, The Miracle of Mindfulness. Brian, you might know that one. It's a classic. Janelle, I don't know if you do as well. Um, and it was the stuff of like, you wash the dishes to wash the dishes. Not to have clean dishes, just to enjoy washing them. And that simple like, oh, that just that sigh of like, yeah, I want to be present for life. If it's washing the dishes, it's brushing my teeth. If it's um, being with my cat, like I just want to be present for life, and that, and that, um, that initial kind of like sigh, was sort of like what what tied me to that. So, I started going to Saint Paul's United Methodist. It became a little bit more um, intellectual that I wanted, and I wanted more practice. And uh, it was in two thousand three that I went to my first retreat with Thich Nhat Han. Um it I felt like I, Pema children was coming to Saint, to Colorado that summer and Thich Nhat Han. I was debating and I ended up having a dream that made me think I was supposed to go see go to his retreat. I'm very glad I did. I feel like his tradition is much more inclusive, gender inclusive. Um, great story. I just heard like by a sister and some uh, one of one of the nuns in his tradition who, talked about uh, a person who was transitioning from um, male to female, let's say, and and he had been a long time, she had been a long time practitioner with Thich Han and was talking with Thái, um, which is the Vietnamese word for teacher. And when and and she asked Thai, or she told Thai that she was she was going to be going by this this other name, you know, after she transitioned and Ty said, can I call you by that name now? And just that like, like, you know, coming from the Vietnamese culture where there is some patriarchy and there's all, you know, all sorts of gender stuff there, like for him to be so steeped in the practice and that non-attachment to form that sort of like just, and just embracing people where they're at was um, a beautiful story to me. So all of that has felt like that has been my home and so I started practicing in, in sanghas, uh, lay-led sanghas, for quite a while, and then met uh, Tin Mon, who is a Vietnamese man, who Vietnamese American, who ordained in a different tradition in Vietnam, um, a v- different Vietnamese tradition, but then spent time with, with Thai in Plum Village and was his attendant and got the... Dharma lamp, which is the teacher transmission there as well, and so he was starting a monastery here after he graduated from Naropa, and it was like that seems like a good place to hang out. So that's what i been doing.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: So you already talked about Thich Nhat Han's influence in your life and that presence, living in the moment. Uh, so Tiknon Han, highly influential uh, to say the least. Vietnamese monk founded engaged Buddhism um, going back on his life. What, what do you find most inspiring about his work in his life?
2: Um, it is that what I alluded to earlier that like, how do we live this daily? Right. This is not something we, it's not even the sitting on our cushion, our walking meditation. Um, I, I, he does emphasize walking meditation because it brings that sitting practice into daily life right so that when um i can pick some route i walk in my house every day and do walking meditation in that space as a part of my daily practice right like you could pick from your bed to the to the bathroom um that kind of thing so there's so that's it and then i think as you're alluding i think ryan to his his founding of the engaged buddhism movement that that other, that piece of like, not just our practice for our own liberation, um, but for everyone's liberation. And that if you're not, that we're not, we're not just sitting on our cushion to sit in bliss, which some people can get, get to that kind of a state. Um, We're here to be community. And so that, so I was going to say, like my mom, like I said, my mom was, Oh, this needs you need to form a community. Like Thich Nhat Han was like in my first retreat with him, you need to create Sangha, right? You need to have this because your spiritual practice is not gonna not gonna sustain on your own. I mean, you maybe it is, but it's not gonna be as rich and it's not gonna be as deep as as, as it would be. So um yeah, and I love I love how um in his own experience, you see this manifesting so that so that his teaching is so rooted in his experience. So his experience of being in the Vietnam in Vietnam during the wars, the French War, the American War, and figuring out how to have the rootedness of practice, which is the nourishment that we need to sustain our action. And the rootedness we need to ground our action in, so that as he would often he would say, the peace movement isn't off, is often not very peaceful. So, how do we maintain and that peacefulness is not like some blissy kind of thing, it is a deep practice of being able to hold those the depths of the suffering that is going on around us right now and in doing that, also be able to touch that joy that is the core of ourselves. That is not externally necessarily. I mean, we we get we get nourishment from nature. We get nourishment from from other people. Um, from our practice, but that that joy is kind of at that center of the onion, that if we peel off the layers of all this stuff that we put on top of the stories we put on top of life and all that kind of thing, it is there. Um, So hopefully that's a little bit of the idea, but the fact that he could hold that and then not take sides and not taking sides in a way that was taking the sides of the people Right. Taking the sides of compassion, of love, of loving kindness, of equanimity, but not taking the sides of one people over another. This this belief system over another belief system. So I think that's been uh, it's a challenging thing. And I feel like in the Gaza Israeli conflict right now, there is so much pull to take this take aside. And how do we hold human all of the humanity there, and fight together against anger and discrimination and greed and intolerance? Yeah.
0: So yeah. yeah it, it seems a lot like uh, you know, Roar talks a lot about that too. Obviously, you know, founded in, in Jesus uh, Christianity, but there's a lot of overlap here. And I know that living Buddha, living Christ was actually one of the first. Books I read of Thich Nhat Han in my earlier mm. days—the the slippery slope for us progressive Christians—but <laughs> <laughs> it, it was uh, it's still it's still very meaningful today. I've read it a couple times. Mm. I like that. This is mm-hmm. that third way engagement, and, uh, not the binary thinking. It's it's so hard. I'm st- I have to remind myself of that often with everything in life, whether it's you know things neighborly or obviously globally, as you had just mentioned.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. And let me read from this quote again um, that I love that in engaged action, you don't have to die to get your message across. We have to remember that even if our protest is very strong, protesting may not be able to remove the fear, anger, and craving in those we are protesting against. Real protest is to help them wake up and take up a new direction. To do that is real action. And we can do it by setting an example, by creating a community of peace and true solidarity, consuming in a way that protects the planet, speaking and listening in a way that transforms anger and division, living simply and happily. This is a radical way of peacemaking. And it seems so simple, but how hard is that to do? Mm -hmm. And how profound is that to
1: to live in that kind of a way?
2: Yeah. Yeah
1: the next question we had was, uh, on the 14 mindfulness trainings and Mm -hmm. just wondered, uh, which, which ones resonate with you the most and why, and feel free to, you know, give us several or whatever, whatever fits best for you.
2: So I'll, I'll at least, so the 14, uh, mindfulness trainings are what the order of interbeing. So the the lay order are the are what we take or what are transmitted to us and what we 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 vow to practice. Um, they are an elaboration of the five mindfulness trainings, which some may be familiar with as the five precepts, and um, in Buddhism. And those are in their simplest, driest form: no killing no stealing, no sexual misconduct, uh no lying and no alcohol and drugs, right? So Thich Nhat Hanh, of course was not satisfied with that and uh <laughs> and um like the no sexual misconduct is called is been renamed true love, right? Like so um and that we live that we are aware of the suffering that are caused by these behaviors and so in that awareness, we vow to do this. So like the second mindfulness training of the five is um, the no stealing. And that one is aware the suffering caused by, by am I, I'm not going to remember, but we vow to be generous. And so we're, we're shifting from this idea of taking from others that especially things that do not belong to us and Shifting that to generosity, so he he gives kind of an antidote in each of them. Um, so the fourteen sort of uh, open those up a little bit more. Um, those five, and I don't know if I can pick a favorite. They're all really ha- really helpful. Um, and there's one about nourishing happiness. There's one about um, like creating. It, and it's, so it's interesting. There's that in that engaged Buddhism, there is the like, not taking sides and standing up for things. So I'm not <laughs> sure exactly how that, you know, the, some of the, some of the, um, uh, those tensions of, of things that don't, don't logically always fit. Um, but I have a friend who's a Tibetan monk and he, he says that that's part of the Buddhist teachings is to to have those conflictual statements so that we get out of the box of our normal thinking and that that is so crucial to liberation to Buddhist teachings. So um, I'm just going to go with the ones that I have on the sheet. Um, This idea of openness, which is the first of the 14 mindfulness trainings. I love that Tai says in this that we are not bound to any doctrine theory or ideology even buddhist one uh so that uh, that whole idea of like these things are meant to be guiding principles but we don't hang on to anything everything is 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 let is to let go and so i guess that was one thing i guess i didn't say earlier when you asked me to put a label on myself like that just doesn't like I would call—I don't call myself Buddhist. I, mean, I remember my kids were in lunch in the cafeteria, and they—they came over to me. I was—I was doing something in the cafeteria at the school. They came over like, "My friends are wondering if you're a Buddhist or not." And I was like, "Well, wow. like I—I I practice some Buddhist practices, and I." I study Buddhist teachings, but I don't know. I, like, it just seems sort of anathema to call yourself a Buddhist. <laughs> it oh, isn't wow. just like, as we get beyond, like, right, that's the idea. that we're not attached to any label. Um, so so that openness, I think, is, is an interesting thing. As somebody who's politically active, like um, when I was active during Obama's first run for president, I remember shifting my approach is like not to just promote him, but to make connection with the people I was talking to. Right. Like I am part of what I'm doing. And I loved that his grassroots org, grassroots organizing approach to campaigning was about creating relationships. Yeah. And that, so it became like a, a like I'm not going to get attached to an outcome of this election or as little as I can. And I'm going to build connection with people and communicate and share ideas. So anyway, that openness. So again, it's it starts with this awareness of suffering created by fanaticism and intolerance. And the antidote to that is to be open, to look at everything with openness, to realize interbeing that everything I I am made the flower is made of non-flower elements the flower is made of the sunlight and the rain and the soil and it can't exist without those elements so that's what that's a as good an explanation of interbeing as I can as I as I've heard and so that to me is, is as well like I am I am shaped by the Israeli the Jew the Palestinian, the Muslim, like I am, all of that is a part of who I am as well. And so if I can't, if, if I'm saying this isn't a part of it, if I'm pushing part of something away, then I'm pushing part of myself away. Like it's it's all there. And and so how to be open to all of that, to hold hold that. And then we do that, not just to like realize it, but to also transform dogmatism, to transform violence, and we have to do that first in ourselves, and then beyond, in our families, in our communities, in our nations, and and then the other one is non-attachment to views, and that's a great one to come back to. It's I think uh, in religious circles it can be pretty hard to have a teaching that goes, oh yeah, your beliefs, don't be attached to them. And again, this doesn't mean you get rid of them. It doesn't mean you don't have any beliefs. It means that you are aware of the suffering that's created, and I'm reading, by attachment to views and wrong perceptions. So we can hold them, but we inform them, and this is where it says, insight is revealed through the practice of compassionate listening, deep looking, and letting go of notions rather than through accumulating intellectual knowledge. And I love this too. Truth is found in life. And we will observe life within and around us, ready to learn, ready to be open. And so, yes, these teachings, like I talk about them a lot. Like I love to share Thai's teachings and uh, other Buddhist teachings. And if somebody questions them, I'm not like, oh, that's bad. Right? Like if there's just, there's room for it. There's room for it. There's a lot more room than we give. We give space for, and when we give, or then we give, give things sometimes. And the more spaciousness we can have, the less likely that attachment will lead to wrong perceptions, will lead to harming other people and ourselves. Yeah, that's
0: that's so powerful. We often talk about the the almighty dollar in, in society, which is true. But then I think about the almighty brain, right? the intellectual proudness, the i am right mm-hmm. and you are wrong and pride pride gets in the way um, to not be attached to what i think so then that makes me think of of arts because as we were talking earlier about the great taylor swift no um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but usually like art music poetry it breaks it breaks things down it, it for, for whatever reason it, it it allows you to look more inwardly so obviously Thich Nhat han was a Phenomenal poet wrote a lot of poems. Do you have any? I don't know if you have any in front of you that were, that are your favorite that you want to talk about. You want to expand upon that means something to you.
2: Um, I think the the poem, and I don't know that I have it here, um, is Call "Me by My True Names." Oh, I guess I do. I guess I do. This is um, the what I have in front of me is just part of it. Um, it's it's a longer it's a longer poem, and the beginning part is is the story of identifying seeing oneself he, he had heard Ty had heard stories of the pirates who would the thai pirates who would attack the vietnamese boats of people escaping from vietnam um, so they're already in these dangerous situations the pirates would attack and steal the stuff that they had brought you know the the last things they had brought along for 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 as they left to to start a new life with, and then there were also instances where, um, where women and girls were raped, and he had heard a story about a young girl who had been raped by a pirate on one of the ships, and was so distraught that she threw herself overboard and drowned. And he said, and this is again getting back to the not taking sides. He said, you know, I could. It's easy to take the side of the girl and be against the pirate. But he said, if, but when I thought more about it, when I contemplated, I realized that I could easily have been if I had been born in that situation and not raised with, you know, raised with um, in poverty and all that kind of stuff. Like I could have become a pirate. Like I could have been in that space. Like how do how do I have compassion for the life that this person led? Not to say that it excuses the behavior. Obviously, it doesn't. Yet we can, if we go into that situation with compassion for everybody, we are more likely to reduce suffering in the future, right? We'll, we'll address the needs of um, impoverished Thai families, um, communities, so that people don't have to grow up in that way. And so the part of the, part of the poem that I'll read was turned also into a song. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition as well has a lot of songs that are is a, is a more unique kind of kind of thing. He again with that non attachment to form, he saw bringing Buddhism and Buddhist teachings into the West in a way that was more readily digestible to Westerners. So we don't call them precepts; we call them mindfulness trainings because precepts can feel a little more too rigid. Um, So this is uh, Please Call Me By My True Names. And you can find many of the songs on YouTube um, if you look up Plum Village Practice Songs. And Plum Village also has an app called, I'll figure that out before we're done. Gosh. Um, Anyway, so this is from the song Please Call Me By My True Names. My joy is like spring so warm It makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so that I can wake up and the door of my heart can be left open.
1: Sounds like a poem we need to be listening to right about now. And I know that, that
2: that imagery of pain, like the river of tears, so vast it can fill the four oceans. That one's easy for me to like take in. Um, so I think it's also really important to sit with the joy, like spring so warm that it can make flowers bloom all over the earth as well. Like, we need both of those. We need to hold both of those at the same time, or at least I need to. How are
1: these, uh, how are the poems and songs used in the practice of engaged Buddhism? Are they like used in the service or just used in personal practice? Yeah, I
2: mean, we'll have a day of mindfulness at the retreat. Or at, or at the monastery, I mean, we'll have a day of mindfulness or we'll have a retreat. And those songs can just be as we're gathering for a Dharma talk, they might be sung um, uh, before walking meditation. We might sing a song about I've arrived, I am home in the here and in the now. And so they just they can be they can be kind of those practice songs that maybe we're singing to ourselves as we do walking meditation um as I'm sitting in meditation, there's a in a deep song, So those rhythms and the and the melodies help to ground those um ground those practice practices in a yeah Cool.
1: Well, as Ryan just posted? Our time is going quickly. Um, Ryan, do you have a question you'd like to go to? Well, I think there's
0: there's just two two on here as well. Some of this we've already talked about, um, but you've already mentioned like the compassionate listening and the deep the deep looking, and I want to somehow <clears throat> be able to intertwine that with being an advocate for peace, communal peace, internal, external, and so that you know that deep looking what. What are some yeah? What are some ways? What are some ways in which c- communities can do more collective deep looking, mm-hmm. so that we can be advocates for peace and create potential change in the world around us, and not be clinging sure. to those results.
2: <laughs> right, right. Oh. yes. And I think that's where that being present with everything, like you know that in that moment you've sown a seed of something, that um, will hopefully will hopefully continue so even if the outcome the expected or desired outcome doesn't happen you know that the seeds have been sown and and thinking about that like how is this how is this meeting where we're planning an action how do we make this meeting one where we are nourishing our joy and our calm and our loving kindness and our compassion for ourselves for the others the other side for um for, for the situation, you know, for, and so that you can bring that energy to that place. Like if you've been around somebody who is in a peaceful place personally, in a grounded place, you can feel that. And the more that we can create that for, in our own lives, in our daily interactions with people, um, that, lends itself to be able to do the deep looking individually and collectively. I love that idea. And I would love to explore that question more about how we do deep looking collectively. I think my, my go-to would be that we have, we start like, let's say in a meeting, we start with some silence so that we're all grounded and present in, in the space and with one another Maybe do a check-in, right, where we share where I'm at, what my context is, so that people can have compassion for that if if, they're, if I'm dealing with some some challenges. Or be nourished if I'm in a good space by what's going on for me. And then some sharing. And in our tradition, we when we do dharma sharing, which is where we have kind of a discussion, we bow in to let people know we'd like to speak we speak until we're finished without being interrupted and then we bow out to show that we're done so that could be that that can allow for deeper listening right and not figuring out what i'm going to say next or uh, interrupting to say oh this is what i think but hearing the full thought the full idea and then having everybody have a chance to share and then maybe taking a moment or five or ten breaths or two minutes or five minutes where we let we stop and we breathe and maybe we close our eyes and we sit and let all of what we've heard from all the people there settle like that idea of the dirty bottle of water that we shake up and, the, and it's all dirty and then we set it down and if we allow it to settle all the dirt rests to the bottom and we have clean water on top we have clarity we can see more clearly and that's the deep looking so that to me would then be like okay here's here's where we're at and um, in the plum village tradition among the monastics there is an expectation that if you disagree with something with a decision that's being made as the collective that you have a responsibility to say that, say to to share that and not sit back and say kind of ruminate or take it outside of the meeting, but to to share what your what your difference is. And then once the group has made a decision collectively, you also have a responsibility to support that effort, right? So you've you've raised your concern, the community, the wisdom of the community, the wisdom of the Sangha comes to a decision, and then um, and then everybody is expected to support it. So I think there's some decision-making kinds of components that you can use, but I also just think that time of quiet, of letting things settle, maybe there's time for writing, I don't know, but that to me would be one route to some deep looking.
0: Yeah, that's much needed for sure, because, I mean, conf- conflict, confrontation, trying to, to get two different sides to to maybe see a third way so nearly impossible mm-hmm. but that creates some possibility so thank you for that that's hopefully that's helpful for others too listening just in day-to-day scenarios
1: well i'll say this ryan it doesn't uh, feel like any board meeting i've ever been in in a church <laughs> which may say a lot <laughs> yeah um because taking time and I, I had an experience. This just made me think of this. I, I got to sit in on a board meeting at another congregation many years ago, and they actually like had a disagreement and then like resolved, even though they didn't all resolve it, like by the end of the meeting, everybody was fine. And I was like, what is this? Cause it was so <laughs> foreign to my experience in the church um, that, you know, to see people kind of do this process, and then decide like, okay, now we're going to move forward. Um, it was mind blowing to me at that point in my mm-hmm. life, because I had just never seen disagreement handled well, in that way.
2: Right, right. That is such a gift to be able to do that. And I think if we start like right here, that's the other thing, like where, where, are, where am I disagreeing with myself? in my head, like, oh, I should do this or no, I should do that. Like what, what's going on? What are the roots of that? And like, even just being able to say, okay, I'm doing too much. Um, I'm trying to do all these things. And I feel like I have to do them all to be accepted or whatever. Like even listening, like starting to listen to what my own stuff is and then be able to say, oh, I could take a rest. I could take a 10 minute nap or or lay down for 10 minutes and relax and then move to the next thing and then if i can do that peacefully like being able to bring that same kind of awareness and experience into a collective group so yeah and there are some going to be some settings where that's not going to work right right like that i i don't i don't think we can pretend that we just come in peacefully um Things are going to be okay. There's going to be harm is going to happen. We can't take that away, um, but how do we repair? Mm-hmm. And and there are some people like I, uh, Larry Ward is a teacher and practitioner in our tradition, and he has written several books, including America's Racial Karma. Um, and he has decided he's not like going to try to change. Try to work with the people who are dead set against what his his vision or his you know his commitment to change he's going to work with people who are receptive and so there is some of that too i think we have to we can be strategic we talk about that in chikna han circles as using skillful means that we're skillful and in how we use our energy and how we make change um so So, yeah, I I think it's, yeah, I I don't want to sound like I'm naive in that sense. I'm sure I am in other senses.
1: (laughs) Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming. And I think we need to have you back pretty soon because we have like three or four other questions we didn't even get to. (laughs) So, and uh, this, Uh, I'm just finding this um, so helpful and poignant in this moment that we're in right now uh, as a culture and as a, as a global community. And I think we need more Mm -hmm. of that. So, so thank you for, for walking with us through this and just helping us, calling us to that place of rest and peace and letting that be a posture that we take with us into the world.
2: Yeah. Thank you too. I, this is my favorite thing to do is talk with people like you. I'm sorry to get to hear more <laughs> of your, your stories and perspectives. So happy, well, to, okay. happy to sit with you again. And um, yeah, that it, these, these teachings are a gift. These practices are a gift and they can help transform And that's the key thing is that we can transform our own pain and suffering into compassion and understanding and love and um, healing, healing. So it's not just about relaxing and and having some peacefulness, but that's good (laughs) at the same time. But it is about using the space that that creates and the energy that that frees up to liberate ourselves and one another can live together um and serve each other
0: yeah namaste
2: namaste be well
0: all right peace
1: everybody cheers